But not long ago, uh, well, actually quite a while ago, but um, I'm, I'm uh, walking down the road and saw a guy standing um, on a bridge looking like he was going to jump. And so um, I engaged him, like, hey, whoa, whoa, what is happening? Like, there are so many things to live for. What are you doing? Like, do you, do you believe in God? He said, yeah, I believe in God. Like, that's amazing. So do I. Like, we both believe in God. That's great. Um, are you a, a Jew or a, a Christian? He's like, I'm a Christian. I was like, me too. This is amazing. Like, let's talk. Let's, let's engage you. Are you a, a Catholic or a Protestant? He was like, I'm a Protestant. I was like, me too. This is great. Like, let's, let's continue to engage. What kind of, what kind of Protestant? He's like, I'm a Baptist. I'm like, me too. This is great. Let's, let's talk about that. Are you a Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He's like, I'm a Northern Baptist. I said, me too. This is, this is amazing. Are you, are you a Northern Liberal Baptist or Northern Conservative Baptist? I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. This is fantastic. You know, we've got so much in common. We should be friends. Are you a, a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist New England region? He said, I'm, I'm the Great Plains region. I'm like, me too. Like, this is great. Like, I was like, well, I mean, are you a... Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1979? Or you a Northern uh, Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said 1912. I said, hey, and I shoved him off the bridge. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how we can agree on so much and still choose to divide over the couple things we don't agree on? We spent the last couple of weeks talking about unity, um, which I believe is an incredibly important message right now in the world as this place we live in, known as Earth, has grown more and more divided and divisive. Um, we spent last week in the book of First Corinthians looking at how this message of oneness um, of, of the church in large uh, is not only one of the issues that Paul deals with in this book, but it's actually the primary message of the letter, and it underlies everything else he says. We kind of went chapter by chapter at how unity is the root and core of everything Paul talks about in that book. So as, we, uh, as we're a practical and inquisitive people, as I know we are, we have a tendency to only truly obey something if we understand it, if we know the why. Why is that so important? So I thought that's what we do today. We would wrestle with the why question. Why is this such a big deal? I mean, the Bible is full of a hundred lines in the sand we could draw. There's so many things we could argue over, so many things we could take seriously. So why this? Why this issue? Why is this the hill that Open Table Community Church chooses to die on? Why unity? Why? I mean, you can argue that it's important because the Bible says it's important. Except the Bible says a lot of things are important. There are a lot of different things. We, we certainly don't believe that unity is important at the expense of all the other stuff. We don't believe that. We don't believe that unity uh, is important and theology and, and getting the Bible right is unimportant. That's not the way. We don't feel like we really want to be biblically accurate and we want to have unity, so we'll go ahead and choose unity and let biblical accuracy go. That's not what we're doing here. That's not it at all. This is not a case... Um, of uh, since, since we can't pursue them both, we'll choose unity. That's not what we want to do. But we do want to know why do we value this so much? 
Why is this so important to us? In John 13, as Jesus celebrated his Passover with his disciples, Jesus calls out Judas and tells him to, to, to go about his fated journey of betraying Jesus. And once Judas, Judas leaves, setting everything else in motion for the night, once Judas leaves and kind of starts the clock, if you will, with time ticking, Jesus says to the 11 disciples that are left, who are about to witness and experience so much, he says this, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other, just as I have loved you. You should love each other. For love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I love that Jesus opens this little speech so bluntly. I mean, uh, if you extrapolate from all the rest of his teachings, um, this doesn't really sound like a new commandment, right? I mean, Jesus told us, his followers that they have a responsibility to love their enemies. That's kind of a big deal. He told us the greatest of all commandments is to love God and love people, that you can sum it all up by this idea of love. And yet, this verse just hits different. I mean, Jesus opens it with some of the most serious language in the Jewish faith. I offer you a new commandment. So imagine how familiar we are with the phrase, the Ten Commandments. Like, we talk about all the time, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. This rolls right off the tongue, right? So imagine, from this Passover meal onward, if you're one of Jesus' disciples... You now have to say the 11 commandments. Like, you know how weird that feels? Like, in all the courthouses, the 11 commandments. So Jesus comes out and he says, I give you a brand new commandment. A new one. And he chooses that word very specifically. A new commandment. And this is the one. Love. Love one another. How simple is that? It makes sense. As we've said, considering what he says about our enemies and the great commandment, it only makes sense, right? Except that Jesus, this time adds the why. He gives us the why. Why is this so important? The other time he just says, love your neighbor, love your enemy, love God, love people. This time he gives us the why. And the why is linked to this word evidence. The evidence. Love is the evidence that we are to offer the world so that they can know we follow him. It's supposed to be love. Love. Not sound doctrine, which is a little scary. Not miracles. Not a sinless life. Not a more logical political platform. Not the perfect church governance. Love. Love is supposed to be the evidence. Love for one another. Because according to the Bible, that will sell the message. According to Scripture, love is what will sell it to the world. That's what they'll believe. Anything else could either be misinterpreted or counterfeit. But love, the Bible says, is what will convince the world that we truly follow Jesus. Now, before we're tempted to downplay this, remember, as we uh, track through the book of Acts, every time the disciples weren't sure if, uh, if someone really was allowed to be considered in, in the, the family, on the team, in the in crowd, they sought the presence of the Holy Spirit. From the moment the Spirit fell on the original church, gathered in an attic, praying on the Jewish holiday of Pentecost, every time the Spirit would do something new in a people, they would look for evidence. When the Samaritans got saved, Peter and John went up to see, and, the, and they saw that the Holy Spirit fell on them. They laid their hands on them, the Holy Spirit fell, and they were like, okay, there's evidence. These people are in. We didn't know they were going to be in. This feels a little weird for them to be in, but 
Who's going to argue with the Holy Spirit? Then Cornelius gets saved. A Gentile, somebody clear outside the family. And when, when Peter comes back and they're like, what are you doing talking to Gentiles? He said, there was evidence. The Holy Spirit fell. What am I supposed to do? And so they, they quieted down. We talked about Acts 15 when they were divided over what it meant to be saved. A huge theological debate where one side is saying, we're not even sure if this other side is saved. The thing that turned the, the argument was Peter stood up and said, you remember when I went to the Gentiles? The evidence was that God accepted them. There was evidence. And no one argued with that. They're like, you're right. There's evidence. When the Holy Spirit is present, that was good enough for the apostles. They didn't ask for a catechism. They didn't ask for a denomination. They didn't ask for membership. They didn't ask what their understanding of how grace is appropriated in the life of a believer. They didn't even ask if you'd ever prayed the sinner's prayer. They didn't have any of these things because the evidence was there. They didn't need them. What else do you need? If the Holy Spirit is okay with this person, who are you to say they're out? I say all this to say the early church took evidence seriously. So when Jesus says, this is the evidence that you will present to the world to prove to them that you follow me, this is not a throwaway statement. This isn't a go out and be nice to people because it's better. This is Jesus saying, this is how you will know. The Apostle John picks up on this. He says, if someone says, I love God, but hates his fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if you don't love people who you can see, how can you love God who you cannot see? And he's given us this command. Those who love God must love their fellow believers. It's not hard to imagine where John got this. He's sitting at the table when Jesus says this after the Passover. John obviously took it very seriously when he heard Jesus say this that night after dinner because John used the exact same language. This is evidence. This is how we know you love God. You love other people. You love fellow believers. John says, I don't care what you say. I'm looking at the evidence. And if the evidence indicates you don't love your fellow believer, when I hear you say, I love God, I'm going to call you a liar. Strong language. Does that sound like crazy strong language to anybody else? Scary. But John isn't interested in a statement of faith. He wants to see the evidence. He wants to see the fruits. Remember how Jesus said you can tell a tree by the fruit it bears? I, can't, I am terrible at trees. Like, I don't know. I grew up cutting them down and making firewood. I know if it cuts like a piece of metal, it's hedge. That's about all I know. I don't, I don't know much else. I know from about 50,000 big scratches that those long things are locust thorns. Those are terrible. But I can't. I'm not a tree person. I can't tell. But I, I have never misinterpreted an apple tree when there's a big apple hanging on it. <laughs> Hey, Applewood. I know Applewood. It's the one with the apple hanging on it. You look at the evidence, the fruit. And so, as you know, Paul picked up on this idea in Galatians chapter 5. We're super familiar with this. He took the simple context of love as an, as, as an evidence, and he kind of expanded it into an entire fruit orchard. <clears throat> because why say in a hundred words what you can say in a thousand, right? I get that. I totally get that. 
Paul says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Now, this is the third time the Scriptures has really honed in on this idea that when you are Christ's followers, certain things will show up. Jesus says, love one another. That's the evidence we're looking for. John says, if you say you love God and there's no evidence that you love people, I will not believe you. And now Paul jumps in and says, stop guessing. Here's exactly what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. You don't have to guess anymore. And I know we might want to debate these verses, but here's what I think. My, one of my dad's favorite sayings growing up. If one person calls you an ass, ignore them. If a second person calls you an ass, think about it. If a third person calls you an ass, you better buy a saddle because you are an ass. I know I couldn't say donkey, but I feel like it would have messed up the... And if all this stuff about the evidence of the Holy Spirit doesn't already bring up about a million questions, let's look at the list Paul gives before the fruits of the Spirit, before the evidence of, of what it looks like when the Spirit is present in the life of the believer. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, wild parties, and things like this. I actually pulled out some of the things so we could deal with them separately out of Paul's list. But this list is very familiar to us, right? We're really comfortable with this list. We've been used to, to using this stuff to define sinners forever. Like, this is our list. Like, we love this list. I mean, this pretty much covers it, right? If any of these things show up in church, we're ready to bring the hammer down. The hammer of judgment to end this list. And I get that. Paul told us that this is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is not steering the ship. This is sinful flesh. This is sinful nature, which is great. But let's look at the things I pulled out of the list. How do we treat with the fruits of the sinful nature like this in church? Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy. Quarreling, jealousy? Dissension, division, envy? It's like Paul is giving a prophetic description of the modern church. This is our bread and butter right here. Holy cow, does this sound familiar to anybody else? This is what we do. If I didn't know any better, Paul had spent a year in one of our churches and came out to tell us what the fruits of the Spirit are. This is how you know you're going to church. And the terrifying conclusion that Paul gives to this entire list, the list we're comfortable with and used to, and the one that makes us squirm and feel uncomfortable, here's his conclusion. i tell you the truth, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is spooky. And if, if you're the type of person who comes down hard on the first list, sexual morality, impurity, lustful pleasure, blah, blah, blah. but you've grown okay, or at least desensitized, to the second list, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, envy, division. And I don't think you're allowed to say you take the Bible seriously. You take the parts you've been taught to take seriously, seriously, sure. But if you take the Bible seriously, you have to take both lists seriously. 
Paul doesn't make any distinction between the two lists. I, I made them two lists. They're one list to Paul. So these sins that we've grown so accustomed to are the evidence that the, that the sinful nature is in control. And this list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc., is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. Then I believe maybe we have our witness test wrong. Because when Jesus said that love would be the evidence, and John reiterated it to the same point, and Paul embellished it so that we could really wear it in any occasion, they all three say nothing about having a proper systematic theology. They completely leave out what kind of worship music we prefer. They even left out the way we vote. They left out whether or not we believe in a literal six-day creation. They left out whether or not we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today or they died with the apostolic age. They left out whether we watch our pastor live or on a screen from a hundred different locations. They didn't bring up any of the important stuff. Now, I wish I could just leave this sermon right here. I wish I could just let it hang. You know, love one another. Amen. Go home. Watch football. I wish I could just say that, that the true followers of Jesus will love one another and they'll agree on everything and everyone will live happily ever after. I wish I could do that. Except the Bible is way bigger than these six verses that we've talked about. The one Jesus said, the one John said, the one Paul said. There's 31,102 verses in the Bible. I quoted six of them. So just because Jesus told us to, to love right after the Last Supper, and John repeated it in his letter, and Paul again in his letter, that doesn't mean that that answers all the questions about the Scripture. And it certainly doesn't mean that we're going to agree on the other 99.9% of the verses just because we love each other. Not to mention the millions of different ways we can walk out those verses. So do we believe the rest of the Bible isn't important? That those six verses are the only ones that are important? Do we decide to scrap all the other study and, and wrestling to figure out the truth because really it all just comes down to loving each other anyway? I mean, let's put it plain. Are there some things worth dividing over? Are there some things that are too far? Aren't there some things we simply cannot tolerate? I mean, the same passage where Jesus tells us that a, that a tree is known by its fruit, he says, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but really they're vicious wolves. Paul reiterates that to, to this, or Paul reiterates this exact message to a group of elders in the book of Acts. He was getting ready to leave and he said, hey, beware, watch over the flock, because false teachers will come. It's something we have to watch. So yes, we do have to look out for dangerous false teaching. It is important. And just so we don't get mixed up, here are the things that the Scripture says we have to look out for. These are the things that, that the Scripture says, when this happens too far, false teaching, shut it down. Okay? This is the stuff we have permission to, uh, to, to divide over. Claiming Jesus did not come in the flesh. Dear friends, do not believe anyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. Uh, do not believe everyone, sorry. I believe some people. Do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they, come, they have comes from God. 
For there are many false prophets in the world. This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. If someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world, and indeed is already here. So, if they claim that Jesus really came in the flesh, they're from God. If they don't, they're not. Pretty low bar. If you can cast them out, if they claim to be the Messiah, Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. So if someone comes claiming to be Jesus, don't listen to that guy. Okay. Someone who curses Jesus. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. So if someone comes and curses Jesus, yeah, you can cut them out. Condemning others for not keeping strict, pious rituals. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink. Or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths for... These rules are only a shadow of the reality to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by uh, insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels saying that, uh, that they have had visions about such things. Their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head of, over the body. So if someone comes pushing crazy pious, you know, you have to do these things to be saved, no, they're, they're out. Teaching myths and spiritual pedigrees. When I left Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those who are teaching in contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time on endless discussions about myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculation, which don't help uh, live a life of faith in God. Forbidding marriage and certain foods. Now, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last days, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars. Their consciences are dead. They will say it's wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods. But God created those foods to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Chasing after myths. But the time has come when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own hearts and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Saying that the grace of God allows you to sin. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into the church and saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The commandment of such people was recorded long ago and they've denied their only master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. From what I can find, that's the whole list. Those are the things that Paul says, no, this is absolutely false teaching. You can't do it. In terms of spelling out what false teaching looks like, all this is, is, is all I can find in the New Testament. And I've seen a lot of church division, uh, and, and in short of maybe that last one, we're saying the grace of God gives us the, the freedom to sin. I've never heard most of these heresies, personally. I've seen churches split over a lot of things, but never over somebody who claimed to be the Messiah. Never over somebody who's cursing Jesus. If I bump into that, I will gladly divide. <laughs> yeah. 
I've never heard a, a pastor claim that Jesus never came in the flesh. I've heard Christians use the grace of God as, a, as permission to sin. And we've got to be careful of that. But please note, this is very specific. This is not saying that grace covers all of our sins. Grace absolutely covers all of our sins, the ones we've committed, the ones we will commit. Grace covers them. But that does not make it okay to go live in sin. Those are not the same thing. We will never escape sin until we finally stand with Jesus on the other side of time. And, but, but, that, but that does not mean it's okay. The grace of God doesn't say you can just go out and sin. Some people might go that far. I believe the grace of God covers our sin because of the work of Jesus on the cross, but that does not make it okay to just intentionally go out and live in sin. This is why we pray the prayer of contrition every single week, because we know we've blown it again, and we want God to forgive us again. That's what grace is for, and we, we completely rely on it, and that does not make it okay to go out tomorrow and just sin because we want to. That's not how grace works. Paul, the same guy who wrote that verse in Jude about and also wrote Romans 7 where he said, man, I really want to do good and I can't seem to do it. I keep blowing it. Thank God he has grace. The real danger is when we start to believe that because we have grace, sin doesn't matter and that is not the truth. According to Jude 4, that's error. But when you listen to those verses about false teachings, there's nothing about prosperity. There's nothing about penal substitutionary atonement theology. There's nothing about social justice. There's nothing about transubstantiation. There's nothing about idolatry versus iconology. All the things we've split over over the years, none of them are in that list. There's virtually nothing about the vast majority of the things that divides the church that Paul says these are the things worthy, or any of the New Testament authors say these are the things that are worthy of dividing over. Paul said to the Corinthians that he came knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That's what this list feels like. Man, if we're preaching Christ and Him crucified, all the other stuff is fringe. We generally take one or two of these passages and we twist them and we bend them and we, and we stretch them so that we can include that group of people. Yeah, we're supposed to stand against false doctrine. It says it right here. Well, is anybody over there calling Jesus cursed? No, but it still applies. Does it? I hope you can see these these warnings against false teachings are pretty much the extreme edge of the fence. There's a lot of room inside of there for debate and discussion and and even argument. The apostles aren't trying to shape the exact flavor of theology. They're putting up a, a pretty wide border, going, "Hey, you cannot go outside of this." You cannot, you cannot go beyond this. This is too far. This shows that the, the apostles aren't trying to, to give us a well-packaged you know, faith with a bow on it. They're putting up boundaries to define where all of the other wranglings can happen. And I think this is where unity becomes incredibly important. I believe in discussion and debate and disagreement with all my heart. I think it's important. We talked last week about how Paul dealt with open and flagrant sin in the Corinthian church with discipline, with church discipline. Paul told Timothy that the scripture was good for rebuke and correction. 
And Paul was telling the story in Acts 15. When he was telling the story of Acts 15 in Galatians, he said, I had to get in Peter's face. But I didn't agree with him. I, I stepped up to Peter and called him out. A good friend of mine sent me a, a video this week of a, a Catholic priest who is absolutely laying into George Biden for being a Catholic who stands for none of the, the Catholic Church kind of political tenets. And one of the things I love is that, I mean, this guy rips him a new one, which is pretty awesome. One of the things I love is, is he announces wholeheartedly that he believes Joe Biden is a brother. He, he's like, he's baptized into the church. I cannot argue with that. And then he just lays into it, which I think is how it's supposed to happen. We're supposed to openly challenge and rebuke each other when we're in error. This is absolutely essential in the church for the church to be healthy. We have to be able to confront and rebuke each other. Even though there is a relatively small list of passages that warn us about blatant false teachings, that doesn't mean there aren't a thousand ways to get the Scripture wrong. And maybe a million ways to sin and miss God's best will for our lives. And there absolutely must be space to deal with those things in the body of Christ. And this is why unity is so vitally important in the church. Because see, by dividing, we've lost our most powerful and needed weapon in the church's arsenal. We've lost the ability to shape and sharpen each other. We've lost the ability to pull against each other and in so doing keep from swinging off into completely absurd, you know, theologies that are out of balance. And mostly we, we've allowed ourselves to get away from all manner of misinterpret, misinterpretation and downright disobedience because we've made division so easy. If our fallen and broken world, in our fallen and broken world, we have to be able to call each other out and ask the hard questions about what it means to be a Christian in this world in 2021. And that can only happen with any health and beauty if we know in our guts that we are committed to loving each other. If love does not come first, confrontation is completely out of context. It cannot happen. And this is where I think Jesus' statement about the power of loving one another starts to make sense. He told us if, if, if we truly love one another, if we truly love one another, the world will recognize that as something different. There's something different about them. Now, I'm making some assumptions here, but if, if we get along and we agree on everything, and we all hang out together in the midst of that agreement and, and love each other, I don't think that looks very weird. I mean, if you went to the Democratic National Convention in 2016, 50,000 people that all seem to be agreeing perfectly. And if they love each other, you just assume that's, that's normal. They're all there for the same reason. They're all great. If you went to one of the most divisive churches in America and you got on the inside, chances are you're going to find people who are very loving and committed to one another. It's not that weird. There's nothing powerful about loving people that you agree with and that, that you get along with and that everything fits just right. That comes pretty naturally. We all do that. No one in the world would look at that situation and automatically assume Jesus is in the center of it. 
In fact, I assume they would consider it pretty logical to love the people you agree with. But, what happens if a group of people with a thousand different opinions and a thousand different interpretations of Scripture, a thousand different backgrounds, all challenging each other and stretching each other and rebuking each other, but remaining passionately connected to each other because of their joint love for Jesus and and their belief that that is far more important than all of these other disagreements that they might have. What would that look like to the world today? To our deeply divided and divisive world. If a Christian Democrat and a Christian Republican, each of whom were fully committed to their team's political party platform, one liturgical and socially active, fully vaccinated and masked, and the other one an evangelical charismatic with no mask or jab and... And yet they both completely loved each other and took care of each other and enjoyed being together to worship Jesus. Because that was so much more important than all of those other things. What would that look like to the world? I think they would stand out and go, what in the world is going on over here? This does not happen. You two are supposed to be at each other's throats. This is not how we play. I think they would recognize something different. I don't know what the world would make of that today, but I assume it would look like there's something bigger than politics. There's something bigger than ideologies. There's something bigger than, than, than mandates. That this Jesus guy that they both seem to love and worship must be a pretty big deal. And he's big enough that these people would overcome all of these things that would normally divide them. They might even come to the conclusion that we love Jesus. Just like Jesus said they would. And I really do think that is what Jesus was predicting at the Last Supper. If you would love, the world would see it. They would recognize the difference. How do we respond to this? I've been using love and unity almost interchangeably in this message. But they really aren't the same thing. Love is the action. Unity is the byproduct. And that's an important distinction. In fact, the, the people in my life that I'm most unified with, the unity is 100% born out of love for each other. I mean, Esther and I probably the easiest example. We've been married 29 years. And for about the first half of those, we fought about everything. Partially because I like to fight. I like to argue. I like to debate. It's what I like to do. But we fought about literally everything. One of our very first, like, really bitter fights was over whether or not she should wear makeup. I was a new Bible student. The Bible said, hey, don't adorn the outward appearance. I thought she was beautiful without makeup. We didn't have much money for makeup. I was like, how about you not wear makeup and obey the Bible for once? I didn't say it like that. I, and I am. I, I lost that debate. We fought over whether or not we should have Christmas for our six-month-old baby. So, sorry, I was six months old. I knew 
because I've taken child psychology and development. He was not going to remember this Christmas. No chance. We didn't have two nickels around together. Why would we buy him a present this year? I lost that debate, too. We got to fight at a restaurant because I wanted to order a non-alcoholic beer. I knew alcohol offended my wife. I wanted a beer. I was going to take one for the team and get an O'Doul's. She said, you're supposed to avoid all appearances of evil. I was like, I don't think the real beer would be evil. So how can this be? I didn't win that one either. I'm starting to see a pattern forming here. But honestly, for the last several years, we don't fight hardly at all. And when we do, it's because something serious needs to be dealt with. And it's not because we agree more. We probably still we probably disagree more now than we ever have. But it seems silly to fight with each other because we both are now trusting and committing to the fact that we love one another. The love is bigger than all the arguments. We still disagree, but love is much, much bigger. Before my best friend died in a car wreck almost 17 years ago, we were scraping up a floor in my kitchen. We were remodeling the kitchen. He he came over to help. And we were working hard and debating harder. I mean, we were screaming at each other. It got to where we were calling each other names. Only an idiot would think that. You know, know, well, clearly you haven't read the scripture. Like, we're, we're going at it pretty strong. Esther and... Uh, this gal that came over with my buddy, she was one of my Bible college students. We're sitting in the in the living room, and Esther's showing her pictures, like wedding pictures. And Kelly, the girl that was with Esther, is like looking in the kitchen, like, are they going to go to blows? Like they're really going at it. And and uh, and Esther looks up and sees Kelly staring in the kitchen. She's like, you okay? She's like, are they fighting? Like, what is happening? Like they're being mean. Esther's like, I don't know. Here in a second, they'll tell each other they love each other and it'll be over. And Kelly was like, I don't know. And so we're screaming. It gets quiet. And after like two minutes of silence, I go, uh, hey, man, you know I love you, right? He goes, I know, man. I know. I love you, too. And Kelly literally fell over on the couch and was like, what in the world just happened? I don't even understand how you can play like that. And that's how Giuseppe and I were. We, we were. we fought hard. And all that was born out of because Giuseppe is one of the only people that was always there for us. Always there for us. The love was so much deeper than, than any fight. He was one of the people that would get right in my face and tell me when I was screwing up. And I listened, not because he made a better argument than me, because I, I always beat him in every debate. But I listened because I knew he loved me. And if Giuseppe is going to get in my face, it means something because I know Giuseppe would die for me. And so if he's willing to get in my face, it means something different. He had poured his life out for me and my family in love. And that was so much bigger than the disagreements. One of the things that I've learned is that I can can humbly take all manner of rebuke when I'm convinced that the rebuker loves me. If you're one of the people that's always picking on me and you come and say something, I usually just ignore that. I'm like, yeah, but you're always mean. It might be true. But I'm like, yeah, but you're mean about everything. But when someone who loves me is in my face, I think, this means something. 
Because this person wouldn't just get in my face for no reason. So I believe that Jesus' command to love is the absolute key to unity. But here's the deal. Real love isn't just something we muster up. It's not something we just make happen. When Paul tells us about the fruits of the Spirit, I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is we try really hard to be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, etc., etc., etc. But that is not at all what Paul says. He doesn't tell us to do those things. What Paul says is these things will just show up when the Holy Spirit is moving in your life. It's the difference between roots and fruits. You don't get more apples by treating the apple better. You get more apples by taking care of the tree. You go for the you go for the root. We have to seek hard the Spirit of God. We have to pursue hard after Jesus, and these are the fruits that will show up in our lives. John said, We love because he first loved us. The love comes has a source. It's not something you just stir up and muster up. We draw closer to Christ. We draw closer to the Holy Spirit because we want the fruits of that. Jesus, our love would be an evidence of our discipleship. If we don't love others, we have to ask ourselves, am I truly following Jesus? Am I truly living as a disciple of Jesus? Because you can't in any way earn Jesus' love by loving others. That's not how it works. That's backwards. We love Christ, and the fruit of that will be that we'll love other people. So the way that I would love to respond to this message is by examining our own lives today. And asking the hard questions about whether or not our love is a testimony to the world. When we say that we love God, does that show up in our love for other believers? All other believers, even the ones we disagree with. Are we full of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? If the answer to these questions are no, then please stop for a second and do some soul work. If we look at our lives and say, I'm not, the fruits aren't there. Don't, don't feel condemnation. Don't, don't like panic. Run to Jesus. Say, I need more of you. I need your grace. As we gather around the table today and and sing one last song, inviting the Holy Spirit again into our worlds. Run to Jesus. Don't walk. These are not suggestions about the way that, 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 that Christians should live. These are a litmus test. These are signs. This is evidence that, that you're pursuing Jesus. That you're following Jesus. And if there's no evidence, run as fast as you can to Jesus. And do business with God. So as we sing this last song, inviting the Holy Spirit again, please invite the Holy Spirit into your heart to do a work. To change you. I can't tell you exactly what that might look like, but but I believe it's something we need to, to constantly do. Examine the fruit in our lives, and if the fruit is not good, go back to the root. And say, Holy Spirit, please work on me. Jesus, thank you so much for dying for me. We're going to celebrate that again today. I want to be close to you. I want to be so close to you. I want to worship you. So that these things will begin to flow out of me.
Let's go to the table.